Hey there, it's Melissa Brunetti, and welcome to the Mind Your Own Karma podcast. Hey there, Karma crew. I hope you are doing well this week. I am bringing you another adoptee story today. Jim Serrano is on the show. You may have heard of him. He's been making the rounds on the adoptee podcast for a while now. It is his passion and he feels that if he shares his story, it gives others permission to share theirs as well. And also gives others a sense that they are not alone in the adoption journey. Let me tell you a little bit about Jim. Jim is a domestic adoptee who was born in 1962 in San Jose, California. He was adopted at six months of age. He's had trauma his whole life from abandonment issues, sexual abuse, and even in the search for his biological family at the age of 37. Jim is passionate about being open and honest with all of the traumas that he has been through in the hopes of helping others. Here's my interview with Jim Serrano. Hey, Jim, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you. Yeah. Hey, I know, you know, you've been on a bunch of podcasts, you're a seasoned, you know, podcast guest. So sure. I'm going to just let you tell your story. Okay. And I mean, you already know all the questions I'm going to ask because you've probably heard them from everybody else. So <laughs> I know they're, yeah. the answers are probably in there. Yeah. Um, so share what you think you want to share. And then at the end, we'll talk a little bit about healing and maybe dig a little bit deeper. But sure. take it away, Jim. Okay. So, um, I'm 61 years of age right now. I'm 61. Um, I was born January 22nd of 1962. I was born in San Jose, California. I was uh, adopted at six months of age um, from San Jose, and I was raised in Gilroy, California. I have no idea where I was born at. I have no idea the first six months of my life. I don't have no idea where I was, who took care of me, anything. All I remember is my parents, when I asked them for my paperwork, when I was going to do my search at 37 years of age, uh, they just told me I was in San Jose somewhere, through the Santa Clara County Welfare Department, wherever that was. So who knows where I was uh, uh, <clears throat> first six months of my life. Uh, I know I have my paperwork from wherever I was at. Mm-hmm. This is Santa Clara County Welfare Department. And what it said in the paperwork was kind of like, uh, they, they had me under Caucasian. And somebody in there named me uh, Freddie. I have no clue because it, 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 in the paperwork, it says Freddie. Wow. So I'll never know who named me Freddie, who burnt me, who picked me up. None of that stuff. I don't know. Because my parents didn't know. They never talked about it. They never talked about my adoption. So they adopted me at six months of age and they adopted uh, my sister. She was a year uh, older than me and her name is Barbara. So they adopted both of us at the same time. So they adopted us. And then um, all through my childhood, um, I could honestly say I was a replacement child uh, for my dad because my dad wasn't a very, um, he didn't know how to show love. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, because maybe he wasn't raised that way, but I never heard I love you from him. I never got a hug from him. None of that. Mm-hmm. But one time I asked my uh, sister, uh, my older sister, which was their child, because they had three kids already. And then they adopted me and my sister, Barbara. Okay. So um, when I had a conversation with my sister, probably about three years ago, I asked her, hey, Susie, um, 
why do you think dad and mom never sat me down and tell me I was adopted? Because I never knew. I just figured it out because the big joke when I was growing up was always uh, they got me at the supermarket. That's what my sisters always used to tell me. Wow. I thought it was a joke all this time until I kind of figured it out. Shoot, maybe I am adopted, right? So, so I asked my sister, why do you think, why, why is it that he never showed me any love? And he goes, you think it's because, see, they had a child named Georgie and he was two years, I think he was two years old and he passed away. So my sister told me, see, I didn't know all this so like three years ago. And my sister told me that my mom was kind of having a nervous breakdown because of the death. Yeah. So I think to heal my mom's heart or to try to comfort her, my dad decided to adopt. Mm. So I was more of, a, I think, a replacement child because I asked yeah. my sister, you think I was like more... My dad resented me because I was replacing Georgie and she didn't say no when I was asked. And I asked all this over the phone with her because I wanted, because I started doing more of these podcasts and I wanted to get the story straight mm-hmm. because I know a lot of my family and friends and what I would hear the story. So I wanted the facts straight and not someone to come back at me and says, no, that wasn't true, Jim. That wasn't true. Yeah. So I wanted to get the facts from her. So she didn't disagree with me. So I figured... Okay, so that's why I didn't really get so much love and stuff. And we both, me and my dad, worked at the same company for 30 years. We both retired from the same company. We used to drive concrete radio mix trucks in San Jose. Mm-hmm. We did that for 30 years. Both of us have a Teamster pension. And we had we retired. I retired in 2012. And that's the reason I'm telling you that because that's part of the story. So he never congratulated me, was proud of me that, you know, I was the number one driver there for like 10 years and we had a hundred drivers and, but never got a pat on the back. So did he, how was he with the other kids? Um, you know what? He, he had a relationship with my older brother, Chuko, Joe, but he, he passed away about three years ago, but their relationship wasn't very well either. Okay. I, I think uh, the, the whole story was them him moving to Houston to get away from issues that they had. But I don't, I don't know their story. So I didn't really want to get involved. Yeah. With so, um, but he loved my sisters. My sisters could do no wrong. <laughs> Even he, the adopted sister. Yes. Yeah. She wow. was like, I always figured she was the number one. She was number one. So that was, that was the number one child. At least that's what it seemed to me. Mm. Me, I used to, um, when I was a kid, I used to get uh, beat a lot. And, and there's one thing that I always remember hearing my mom always hearing her in the background uh, that's enough, Jose. That's because the name was Joe. So he was, she would say, Jose, that's enough. He's had enough when I was getting beat. Right. So, um, but my sister, so there was really no love going, growing up, uh, through the ages, you know, of me living there and stuff. And, um, so my, but my sister told me one thing when I was asking these questions, I go, she goes, you changed, you, you became more of a rebel between the ages of like the early teens and stuff like that. Well, see, she didn't know why that was happening. Cause see, nobody, I didn't tell anybody about what happened to me as a child till I started doing the podcasts. And so what happened from the ages from nine to 11, I was being molested by a, a, a older a male cousin. He, he was in his twenties and I was nine. Wow. So I was being molested from the ages of nine to 11. But see, I held that. I held that secret all my life till I was. 52 years old when I told my wife and my daughter, wow. my wife had been married for 39 years, almost 39 years. And my daughter's going to be 36. So one day when I was 52, we we're going to go get some ice cream. 
And there was a thing on this on the radio. It was talking about um, uh, child abuse, child sexual abuse. So something right there just triggered me. I go, okay, Jim, this is the time to say it. So I told uh, uh, Tina and Elizabeth that, you know what, um, I was molested as a kid. And they, they were shocked. They go, what do you mean? Mm. But I didn't tell them who it was. So they, they didn't know who it was. Because the only one who ever is going to know who it was is going to be Tina. Because I only told Tina about a year and a half ago who it was. Oh, wow. And the reason why I told her was because uh, one of my favorite movies is Antoine Fisher. Antoine Fisher's the scene that he he's in the um, in the foster care system, but he was being molested. So there's a scene in the movie where his foster parent was living with the other kids, but he was being left behind with the person that was molesting him. Mm. So I was looking at that movie one day and I just broke. Yeah. I said, Jim, it's, it's time. Tell somebody. So I told uh, Tina who it was. And the person who it was, was he lived right across the street from Tina. Cause we dated for like two years, but she didn't realize uh, that the person that molested me those years lived right across the street from her where I used to go wow. pick her up every day. So I have to have that because it's right across the street. It's like, I could, I could, I, I could tell you right now what the room looks like in my brain right now. I could tell you exactly what the room looked like, the smells, what happened and everything. Mm-hmm. I'll never go into details what happened because it's something that as a man, you, you feel shame all your life and which I did. That's why it took me so long to, yeah. to start talking about it. But the more I talk about it, the more uh, men come to me, mm-hmm. tell me their experiences. And they look at Jim Serrano as the tough guy. That always was into fighting all the time. And I'm still fighting now. I'm, I, I'm in kickboxing and Muay Thai. But it's not, it's kind of part of my uh, therapy. But I think it's sometimes I know when I need to be there just to hit the bag and not do nothing else. Not even be in a class just to go hit the bag. Because some days I'll have something to trigger me, right? Yeah. So the beginning of the search started uh, when I was 36 and a half, 37, 37. And we were, we lived in a little town called Los Banos, 45 miles from where I live now in Gilroy. So we lived there for 20 years. And so I was watching a program on uh, TV. It was a talk show or something like that. It was talking about uh, uh, people looking for their lost family members. So the person in there was talking about uh, you could get non-identity information. Mm-hmm. So I seen that and I looked at Tina. I said, babe, I think it's time. He goes, you th- is it time? I think it's time for me to go look because my daughter was getting older too. And I didn't want her growing up like me, not knowing anything about your medical background, who you are. It just, I didn't want her growing up like that. And that's our only child. So she's very special to me, to us. So um, I said, okay. So the hardest part was going to my parents and say, Hey, hey, I'm going to start searching, you know? And I always remember my dad telling me, are you ready to to find out what's out there for you, Jim? I go, yeah. But she, he kind of like, kind of tried to discourage me because he used to say, but Jim, you're a Serrano. He goes, dad, I'm not a Serrano. I'm not putting down the Serrano name. It's just that that's not me. That's not my blood. I need to find out who I was. Yeah. So they gave me the paperwork. That's that paperwork that I have about Freddie. He says Freddie on the. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So I had that. That's all I had. That's all they had. So I got that paperwork and, and I went to the county records in San Jose at the, uh, on the Heading Street. And my company where I worked at is only two blocks from there. Mm. I worked for Central Concrete, uh, driving a concrete rain mix truck, delivering concrete. I did that for 31 years all over the Bay Area. 
So I went down there, went to the fourth floor and asked the lady there, hey, I'm here for my non-identity information. She says, oh, okay. And so I told her I was adopted and all that. Told her who I was, wrote all the paperwork and she says, okay, it's probably going to take six months for all that to come to you. She says, oh man, six months. <laughs> so I got kind of like depressed, right? So um, Tina says, don't, you know, babe, just, you know, it'll come. Yeah. So about, gee, maybe a month and a half, two months later, I was walking to our mailbox to go get their mail because the mailbox was down the street, in the middle of the street. So I went down there and I see this piece of paper. It says, County of Santa Clara. I goes, oh, shoot, did I get a ticket or something? You know, <laughs> or, is, or is it jury duty or something? You know, they still got me in Santa Clara County. <laughs> That's the first thing that came to my head. Right. So I opened it up and it was uh, non-identity information. I goes, oh, shoot. So it says, uh, your biological mother was... Uh, five feet, 89 pounds. She had two kids at the time of your birth. She was living with your grandparents. Um, uh, she worked at a doctor's office at the time. And her and your biological father had a brief affair. Mm-hmm. The biological father's information had, he was five, seven, dark hair, dark eyes, medium built. Oh, he went to high school till 10th grade, quit high school in 10th grade to go work full time. And also they had about him. Okay. So I had that. In the meantime, all that, my parents never asked me anything about my search because they didn't want to know anything about it. They didn't want me to go search. They never talked to me about it. So I was, you know, I'm on on my own, you know, no encouragement, nobody to help me out. I just, me and Tina, me and my wife. Yeah. The only one to help me out. So um, one day at work, I was on a job site and I was delivering concrete, right? So there was a gentleman there. His name is Carlos Bryan. He worked for this company that delivered concrete to his company for like 20 years. And we knew each other for 20 years. He knew my dad. And he goes, hey, Jim, how's it going? He goes, oh, it's going good. He goes, what have you been up to? Because we used to talk about life all the time. That's how close we were. He goes, wow, you want me to tell you the truth, Carlos? I go, yeah. Wow, I'm looking for my biological family. And he looks at me and goes, what? He goes, yeah. He goes, you mean Joe's not your dad? He goes, no, that's not my dad. That's, that's, he adopted me. Oh, shoot. You got any any information about your biological parents? He goes, yeah, I do. So I described my biological mother and he he was shaking his head. He goes, Jim, when were you born? I goes, uh, in 1962 in January. He goes, oh, shoot. He goes, why? He goes, because to be honest with you, he looked kind of looked like me. Kind of looks, we look like each other. And the description in the piece of paper is five seven, medium build, dark hair, dark eyes. That's Carlos. And but he kind of looked at the description of my biological mother, and he right away he says, "That sounds like Marie." I go, "Marie, who? This girl that um, I was dating, and I heard that she got pregnant, but then she moved away, and she didn't want anything to do with me, and she gave the baby up for adoption." Mm. I go, whoa. So I kind of told him the information about her. I goes, that's Marie. Because she worked at a doctor's office. She was living with her parents. And she had two kids already. Wow. So, and he heard that she moved away and she gave up a baby for adoption. He told me that. Wow. So he looked at me and goes, shoot. So I'm looking at him. Damn. And he goes, this is the information I got on, on my biological father. He just looks at me and goes, whoa, because I think we might be father and son because he says, doesn't make no sense. Yeah. So back then I didn't have a cell phone, right? So this was like 23 years ago. So 
I run to, I get off the job site and go to the phone booth right away and call <laughs> Tina. Hey, what else does it say on the biological information about my father? As well, everything that you just, you just told me, um, is on there. Did you tell him about the, um, high school? He goes, no. So I went back to the job site and, and Carlos goes, Hey, what are you doing back here? He goes, well, I got to ask you a question, Carlos. And he goes, yeah, what's up, dude? He goes, um, did you go to high school, Carlos? And he goes, yeah, I did. Because, oh, okay, so you graduated and all that. And he goes, no. I goes, I quit in 10th grade to go work full time. He goes, oh, shit. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what the what? piece of paper says. <laughs> so when I told him that, he looked at me and goes, oh, wow. He goes, I think you are my son. That's crazy. And so we're, and I've known him for 20 years. So about a week late after that, another driver uh, that, that I worked with, his name is Johnny. We go in the driver's room. We're getting ready to warm up our trucks or whatever and start the day. And he tells me, Hey, Jim, I heard about you and Carlos. I go, I looked at him and go, <laughs> How do you know? He goes, Dude, um, I used to live with Carlos's daughter, which would be your sister for five years. Carlos told her about our, your conversation. Mm. She wants to meet you. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. And she had a son. You know, so I said, all right. So when we used to live in Las Pinos, they used to have a, a whole week um, called May Day Fair. It was mm. like you know, the fair was in town yeah. the whole week, right? So I met her for lunch, her and her son with Johnny. And then I said, hey, you want to come for the weekend to stay with us? Because sure. So they came down, spent the weekend with us and got to know her. And then me and Carlos decided to go do our blood test because I went and met his wife. He was living in Hollister at the time. I met his wife and she, we were really planning holidays together and everything. And we're going to start searching for my biological mother. Right. So um, seven weeks later, the the blood test comes. Uh, It was negative. It wasn't, he wasn't my father. Oh, wow. Everything in that piece of paper matched, but the blood test was negative. He wasn't my father. So that was probably one of the worst times of my life was I had to make that phone call to him and tell him, Carlos, I goes, we're not father and son. Wow. And I was emotional. He was emotional. Yeah. I still remember my guy that I used to commute with from Los Bios. He says, man, that next day I, I drove you into work and you were a zombie. Yeah. It's like you were just crouched into the, the my cabin, my truck. And I was all, Jim, you, you need to go home, man. And I know, I don't even remember that day. And so. Well, it seems like the blessed, blood test was just a formality, like everything yeah, else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. So Tina goes, don't give up, babe. Don't give up. We'll keep on trying. It's all right. In the meantime, uh, my mom that raised me uh, developed breast cancer. That built brought some more guilt on me. How can you do this to your mom while she's suffering with breast cancer? So that's another thing that was bugging me. So um, six months later, uh, (laughs) my wife and our neighbor from across the street, Connie, they were talking. And all of a sudden, they start talking about their husbands, right? You know, wives talking about their husbands, right? <laughs> so so um, Connie goes, uh, they're talking about uh, her husband, Dominic, which I knew Dominic because we used to play baseball together. When I moved there, I was on his softball team. So we were friends. So I didn't know he was adopted. Then Tina told Tina told Connie, Jim's adopted. Because he is. Because, wow. Because, yeah, uh, Dominic found his his parents but i think both of them were deceased by the time he found them so you should go have him go talk to dominic so okay 
So I went across the like, hey, topic. I didn't know you were adopted. Because, yeah, I am. Because you too? Goes, yeah. So we started talking and he was in a program called uh, Adoptees Identity Discovery Network. Okay. And his chapter was in Merced because he was in Merced County, right? Well, I was born in San Clara County, but uh, they had a meetings there too at a Kaiser building in Santa Clara County. Oh, wow. So I went to the one on Homestead and I went to a meeting with a gentleman, call him my angel. He was probably late seventies, middle seventies. His name was Neil Kylie. It was me, Tina, and probably about five other adoptees went in there. What he does is he just helps you search for your family. Mm-hmm. So I go in there and all I had was that paste piece of paper that I, from my parents that they gave me, gave him that we were in the meeting for maybe three hours, maybe at the most. Cause all right, well, Go home, and then um, I'll probably have some information for you by the end of the week or something. I go, what? Wow. It's crazy. I go, how are you going to get information for me just giving you a piece of paper from 1962, right? Yeah. And so whatever. So uh, I think it was probably, I don't, I can't remember. It was two, three weeks later, maybe a month later. He calls me. He goes, hey, Jim, I got three names for you. I goes, what? Yeah, I got three names for you of these three ladies that might be your your biological mother. One was in in L.A., one was in, I think, Long Beach, and one was in San Jose. So I had all the three addresses, okay, and their names, and I kept it in my wallet, right? So one day (laughs) I was driving my concrete truck after uh, I was already finished with the job site, right? I I was coming on the way back. And one of the addresses was on White Road in San Jose. And uh, I had the address in my pocket and I turned and I go, shoot, there's the address of the house that I have in my pocket. I said, oh, hell with it. So I pulled over. I went and knocked on the door. What can I say? What can I say? So I went and I knocked on the door and this guy answered the, the door and he kind of looked like me, right? And I asked him, hey, did you order any concrete? Because my truck was outside, right, in the front yard. He goes, no. I goes, oh, sure, okay, well, I think I'm lost, but I'm trying <laughs> to find <laughs> this house, you know. It says, oh, no, we didn't order no concrete. All right, well, thanks a lot. So I get back in my truck, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I go home and tell Tina, and she's like, you're crazy, man. Why would you do <laughs> When you have to – not know who you are all these years and, and, and go through all this trauma of, of no love and the sexual abuse. You, you, you're going to do anything just to find out who you are. Yeah. You have someone to love you, right? You, I just want someone to say, I love you, Jim. I just yeah. I wanted those three words. And people always ask me, when was the first time you heard, I love you, Jim? Or I felt like, like somebody actually loved me. And I always bring up this story. It was me and Tina were going out and we were dating and I fell in love with her. I took her to a Chinese restaurant and I hadn't told her I was adopted yet. And we were already going out for maybe a year. Finally at the restaurant, after we eating dinner, I told her, hey, babe, I have something to tell you. She goes, well, yeah, what? Because I'm adopted. It, it still gets to me. when I <laughs> this, this happened 40 years ago, right? And uh, she just said, well, okay. What? She didn't care. But as an adoptee, you feel like an outcast. And you feel like people are going to think of you. What's wrong with you? Why didn't any, no one want to keep you? You know, yeah. are, you, are you a whack job? Yeah. I thought for sure she was going to leave me because of the abandonment mm-hmm. issue that adoptees go with all their lives. You know, I'm thinking, okay, finally, I know what love's about. Now she's going to leave me. I know she's going to leave me, but I had to tell her. Wow. She didn't leave me. And so that's the first time I felt love. So 
Where was I? My story. Okay, so um, you went to the house and knocked on the door. I went to the house, knocked on the door, and then uh, a week later, Neil Kylie calls me up, and he goes, "Jim, I I found your mother." You did. He goes, "I was in Gilroy at my cousin's house. Uh, I was just there hanging out with him." And he called me. It was about eight o'clock at night, and he goes, uh, "It's the house in San Jose." He goes, "Oh shit!" I go, "Neil, uh, I stopped there about two three weeks ago." He goes, what? <laughs> I go, yeah. I go, you're not supposed to do that. I go, but I did it anyway. You know? I go, okay, Jim. Well, here's, here's, the, here's the number. Well, I already had the number, right? And the name. So her, her name was Noberta uh, Montoya Dominguez. Mm. Montoya was her maiden name. Dominguez was the husband I was married to then, right? Dominguez. That night, I still remember. It was probably about 9.13, 9.14. I still remember it. Wow. And I called her up and I asked her. And she answered the phone. I asked for my brother, Bobby, the one that answered the door. Because I knew their names, too. I don't know how he got the names, but he got the names. Oh, gosh. So I asked, is Bobby there? And she goes, no. He goes, how about Paul? Paul was my younger brother. He's like five years younger than me. He was uh, the husband that she has now or was married to now. Their son. Okay. So... She says, no. I goes, who's this? I goes, well, this is Jim Serrano. She goes, I don't recognize your name. I know all my my son's uh, friends because they all were wrestlers and they all were a big gang, right? Wow. You're all hung out together all the time. And uh, goes, um, no, um, 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 somebody that needs to ask you a question. I goes, okay. He goes, does January 22nd, 1962 mean anything to you? It was dead silence on the phone. Dead silence. Okay, I'm not trying to disrupt your life. I'm going to ask you that question one more time. Does January 22nd, 1962 mean anything to you? She goes, who is this? And why are you doing this to me? And I told her, I'm not going to disrupt your life. I'm not doing anything to you. But I have a daughter that we don't know her medical background. Can you at least give me that? And she just says, you know what? I can't talk right now. So, okay. She goes, can I call you tomorrow? I think, all right, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, you're not going to call me tomorrow. Right. You just want to get get off the phone. So I said, okay. So I hung up on the phone. Of course, I hung up on the phone. I was a, I was a wreck. Even my, my my in-laws had to pick me up and take me home to Las Vegas because I couldn't drive. Okay. I was I was a mess. So um, me and Tina were talking that night in bed, and all of a sudden, the phone rang. It was her, Norberta. She goes, Jim, can you meet me in uh, Valley Medical in San Jose tomorrow at 10 o'clock in the morning? He goes, Okay, kind of strange place to meet, but okay. So I met her there, and I kind of she kind of described what she looked like and the car she'll be driving. And so I met her in the parking lot at Valley Medical because she had appointments with her kids. She said her kids. Hmm. Okay. So met her in the parking lot. She came. She ran to me, hugged me, and cried in my arms. Me, uh, I had a very still a black heart. I had I had no love for her. Hmm. I just want her to pay for what she did to me because of me not having any love and me being molested. I, I I was just trying to blame somebody. Yeah. I wanted her to feel my pain, but it was like a stranger hugging me. Yeah. So she goes, can you go with me to my kids' appointments and stuff like that? I go, sure. So we talked for a little bit, just not really deep conversation, just whatever, right? Then she tells me, goes, Jim, I have to tell you something. We went out to the parking lot again. Yeah, he goes, 
nobody knows about you because I have to go home and tell your siblings that you exist. Wow. I have to go home and tell my husband that you exist. Nobody knows about you. I kept your secret for 37 years. Wow. So that made me feel even shittier, right? So, mm-hmm. so she says, I'm going to go home. Yeah, I'm going to go tell. It's all right. I said, well, good luck. Hey, I just, she gave me a hug. I said, okay, goodbye. In my mind, I was thinking, okay, that's, I met her. It's probably the last time I'll meet, see her again. So, cause I'm thinking, you know? Yeah. So she calls me up probably about the next day. Yeah. The next day she tells me, Hey, my, my husband, Paul Dominguez, um, he says, all this stuff that happened to you wasn't your fault. So why would, why take, uh, who you are away from you. So come over to the house and meet your brothers. And I want to meet you too. Because mm-hmm. my sister, I had a sister, but she was, she was living in Montana at, this, at the time. Her name was Wanda. So I went to the house and met my brother, Paul and Bobby and spent the time with them for about know, a few hours and then went home. Right. And still there was a bunch of kids around the house. Right. So, so I got home that night and we we're talking, me and Tina were talking. Then she called me up again. To see, you know, how I was doing and all that. And so I'm doing okay. It's going to take a while for me to focus and try to sink all this in, you know. Of course, I didn't tell my parents yet because they don't want to know. So uh, then I asked her a question. All those kids that are around the house and all that, I goes, are you, those are all your grandkids? Because no, those are my foster kids. Wow. So her and her husband had five. She just retired maybe. She passed away 11 months ago, but... <laughs> Her and her husband were foster parents for 25 years in San Jose wow. and had 500 kids come through their home. Oh, my gosh. So that you made me feel. Yeah. Like, because so you took care of 500 kids, but you can take care of me. Yeah. Well, plus you had siblings older than you and younger than you. Yes. You're the only one she gave up. Yes. And then foster kids after that. Mm-hmm. So after that happened. Then I asked her, who's my father? Is Carlos Bryan my father? Maybe the blood test was wrong. Yeah. No, no, that's not your father. Mm-hmm. Your father is Raw Coca. Because Raw Coca, where, where's he at? I don't know. I haven't seen him in 38 years, you know, 39 years. And the one night stand or wherever it was. He goes, but I know your uncle's uncle is. He has a, a, a furniture store downtown San Jose. He's been there for 50 years. Right there in Santa Clara and Third Street. So it's called Tank Coca's Downtown Furniture. Mm-hmm. So I knew where that was because it's been there forever, right? And um, so one day I was at a job site right across the street from the store. So I said, okay, this is a week later. He says, just go in, Jim. Yeah. Walked in there. He goes, hey, can I see Hank Coca? And the guy looked at me and goes, who are you? And he goes, well, I'm just looking for Hank Coca. He goes, well, I'm Hank Coca Jr., he was the ma- assistant manager of the store. I goes, okay, so what do you need him for? That's my father. He goes, well, actually, I'm looking for raw coca. I go, raw coca is my uncle. Mm. He goes, well, I'm going to come out and just tell you. Um, I might be his son. He goes, he looks at me and goes, what? <laughs> yeah, here's here's my number. Uh, Naberta Montoya Dominguez is on the piece of paper. Can you give this to raw for me, please? And he goes, 
well, kind of like a movie because oh, I will though. <laughs> so he gave, so he gave it to, uh, uh, my, to raw coca. And then maybe about three weeks after that, Noberta, she threw me a party at her house to introduce me to the family. Mm. So I went over there and eh, that was nice. You know, got to meet the family and all that, but you know how that is. I mean, you sit there and you see everybody's eyes are just looking at you, you know? Yeah. You feel like, Oh man, this is uncomfortable, but you're supposed to be happy, but it's, you're uncomfortable. It is. Yeah. So I get, I, so on the way home, me and Tina were talking and as well, I guess raw. If he's my father, not my father doesn't want anything to do with me because he hasn't called in three weeks. Mm-hmm. So we get home and, Tina opens up the garage door. She goes, Jim, you get in here now. Goes, Why? Listen to the, the, the voice machine. Remember the voice machine? Oh, yeah. 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 The voice machine. So I pushed, pushed the button. It says, hi, this is Raw Coca. I might be your father. You want to meet me at Original Joe's in San Jose? <laughs> I said, sure. So I met him there the next day. Here he comes walking. He looks just like me. <laughs> but, but, he, but he's a lot thinner. You know, body type. Till I found out that he had a twin. He was a twin. And his twin looks exactly like me. Same body type and everything. But he was thin. Yeah, Yeah. see? So we talked about it. And he remembered Noberta. He remembered her. And then we did the blood test. And it came out positive. He was my dad. Oh, wow. So so that happened. Of course, I still didn't tell anything about to my adoptive parents because they didn't want to know anything about it. Till maybe about... I don't know, six months after, maybe I finally told them. And of course, my mom was still going through breast cancer and stuff mm. like that. So on my 38th birthday, my biological mother decided she wanted to throw me a surprise birthday party. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, wonderful. And I found out about it. one of my buddies blew it and told me three weeks before. So I finally found out about it. I was just like, oh, my God. Uh, I asked Tina, I goes, who told you? He goes, well, somebody told me. She goes, is, is my family coming? She goes, yeah, they said they're all going to come. Yeah. Wow. My, even my parents? He goes, yeah. I goes, oh, shit. <laughs> How so, uncomfortable is that? <laughs> oh, tell me about it. And this, see, there's another thing that uh, I forgot to mention. that See, through the molestation and, and the abandonment issues and stuff like that, I started drinking when I was 10 years old. Wow. 10 years old, I started drinking. And when I got walked into that party and I seen – I walked in, and the first table I seen was my mom, my dad, <laughs> my biological mother, and her husband sitting at the same table. Oh, my gosh. I looked at that. I go, oh, my God. And I seen the pain in my my mom's face, and I seen the anger in my dad's face. Mm. I go, who in the hell would be stupid enough to put them at the same table? Yeah. So I got there that day, and all my buddies were there. There was a lot of people. There was about 200 people who showed up. So I got drunker than drunk. Took every shot from every guy that wanted to give me one, right? But one thing I always remember that night is, is this is my 38th birthday. So my dad, at the end, he he went home. He was going home. He's walking out of the, the party with my mom. And he looked at me. He goes, Jim. He pointed at me. He goes, tomorrow we're going to talk about this. Oh, and I knew he was pissed. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So the next day we went home to Las Bios and we were at home. And I was watching TV and all of a sudden. I felt my heart was coming out of my chest and I collapsed and I yelled for Tina. Wow. I go, babe, call, call an ambulance. I think I'm having a heart attack. Mm. So ambulance came and got me yeah. right away. They, they thought he was a full blown heart attack. Wow. Took me to the hospital. I ended up in ICU for two days and 
during the, the second day of, of me being in ICU, here comes my biological mother walks into the room, just looking at me. And then five minutes later, here comes my parents that raised me right behind her in the same room, just looking at me. They weren't saying a word to each other. Yeah. And I'm thinking, man, if I had a gun right now, <laughs> I would just blow myself away and let them suffer what they're doing. Yeah. They don't understand. They don't. Because see, and that suicide thing in my brain, I had that planned out even when I was a teenager, because I already had planned out how I was going to kill the person that molested me and how I was going to blow myself away. I already had it planned out Mm. from the ages of 16 and 17. I had that planned out. So it was easy for me to think that. It all flashed back to me how easy and how angry of a person that I would have had that in my head to actually kill somebody, but blow myself away at the same time, just to get away from all that pain of being molested and, and, and proving my manhood because it would, it would be in a nail male, you know, and it's not a, something you want to remember, but I always tell people, what's the hardest cry I've ever had? Probably at my mom's gravesite. And the day that I admitted to Tina who it was, because I always remember my mom protecting me at, when I was taking off my corsage and put it on the on the casket, I broke. Mm. But I also broke because the one person that molested me was at the gravesite at the same time. Mm. But people didn't know that. Yeah. So I, I had to live that all my yeah. life. So so I ended up in ICU and came out and the doctor says, okay, we're going to release you. Um, we don't understand it, but we heard about your story and your struggles and stuff like that. So I think you really need to go see a therapist. Mm. So I went to go see a therapist. And of course, good old therapist. He didn't know nothing about adoptees, nothing. And prescribed me Paxil, antidepressants. So I was on antidepressants for three months. And couldn't do life, nothing. And finally went back to went back to work after three months and met a gentleman there, Isaac Dominguez. And he invited me to church. I went to church with him and Felt a little bit better going to church and, and, and releasing all that anxiety I had. And one day I was at church and took some anxiety pills, got home and threw them all down the drain. Went to my therapist the next day and he asked me, hey, how are you doing, Jim? He goes, well, I threw all my medication down the drain and I don't need you no more. He goes, what? You can't, you know, he's trying to explain to him. You can't do that, Jim. Yeah. I don't need you. Wow. So I never went back to him. And that Friday night, uh, the program 2020, they had a special on Paxil for a whole hour, how people were getting off that antidepressant and committing suicide. Oh my gosh. Yeah. See, so of course, and then after that, uh, you know, my parents were never um, interested in the relationship. They never mm-hmm. asked me about it. I could I honestly tell you that uh, for 20 years, my relationship with my biological mother was, uh, was up and down struggle. Um, it was a roller coaster. Uh, most of the time was because she's she's trying to tell me how I should feel because she took care of 500 kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but she, you're not an adoptee. Right. And Tina it always used to not defend her, but she would just say, Jim. She doesn't understand. You're never going to understand her and she's never going to understand you. And that's the way it's going to be. And that's, I think that's why we always butted heads. Right. We butted heads for 20 years. Mm. She, she died 11 months ago and it's sad that I didn't have no emotions. You never did. The, from day I never one. did. No. Wow. 
I never had no emotions. I've never told her I loved her. As a, as an adoptee, you put that facade on all your life and you're an actor, right? Yeah. Well, this last few years, I told myself, Jim, that's it. I'm not an actor no more. That's why when I tell my story, I tell it and I, I'm very transparent with it. And I've lost family members sure. by telling my story. Yeah. Um, family members tell me that I'm not a man because I was complaining about being adopted. Oh, you were raised in a good home. You have no clue. Yeah. No clue what I went through. Have you heard my story? No. Mm. See? So, and then the funny part, me and Tina were talking about the other day. The funny part is my dad developed, the one that raised me, he developed dementia. He had for 10 years before he passed away. Guess who took care of him for the first six years? Me and my wife. Wow. Yeah. How was that? Oh, you know how many times I, because the dementia, I, I don't know which is worse. I see my mom die from breast cancer and I see my dad mm. die from dementia. I don't know which is worse, but dementia is just like, man, just that's a terrible it's disease someone to go through. And I had to take care of him when he never even cared about me. Right. And then Tina says, babe, because that's how much of a good man you are. I don't want to hear that. And that's one thing with adoptees. We, I, we hate compliments. <laughs> oh man. I hate it. I don't know how to accept them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, like I said, she passed away uh, 11 months ago. My biological father passed away eight years ago. My mom that raised me about 22 years ago. And my dad that with dementia 10 years ago. So they're all gone now. Mm. So that's a weird feeling now, too, that yeah. I don't have no nobody. And the funny part was my last um, birthday, well, 61, I turned 61 in January, that uh, I didn't have no one to text me. No one texted you. None Nobody of your text, relatives. Nope. No one texts me happy birthday. Wow. Not even my siblings. Not one of my siblings texts me happy birthday. Wow. So how does that make you feel? How does that make supposed to make me feel? I mean, at the service, my siblings said, Oh yeah, we gotta stick together. Why do I always have to reach out? Yeah. It does feel that way. I haven't heard from them. Maybe one or two texts. In 11 months. Wow. But you know what? You, you get so used to it. It's just that, you know what? Jim, don't care about the people that don't show you love. Love the people that love you. Yeah. And that's why that's why I've been changing my whole way of thinking in my life. Life is too short. I'm 61 years old and I don't want to be this angry adoptee, this guy that's always angry about everything about his whole life. Yeah. I got to get, get over that. And people will say, well, shit, you went through so much shit. Yeah. Yeah. Big deal. But I'm not going to let the trauma defeat me. Mm -hmm. The way of me defeating the trauma is by being transparent and helping others. Now letting them know that you're not alone. I understand. I understand sexual abuse. I understand no love. I understand abandonment. I understand all that. Yeah. Now, now you could just come to me and I could be honest with you. So that's where I'm at now. That's my life right now. Yeah. Well, thanks for being so open with your story. And I just want to say to your abuser, whoever you are, yeah. you're screwed. You're screwed, dude, because your karma is shit right now. Yeah. Like you are so screwed for doing that. That just, I, yeah. You know, I, the, fu- the funny part about that is I was, I watched Joe Rogan a lot on his uh-huh. podcast 
and he had a guest on there. And this guy was a playwright, and he wrote a play about him being sexually abused as a child. Mm-hmm. And they interviewed him, and he said he went to the abuser about four years ago to confront them about his abuse. And he had a gun in his backpack when he was talking to him. Wow. And when I seen that, oh, my whole mind went back that time. And I called Tina right away and I told her, I've had a bad day today, man. I showed her the interview. It's only like a three minute clip, but so much in that clip that just triggered me, man. And bring yeah. back the anger. I don't want to be that. See, everybody sees the Jim Sorrell, the smile on my face, but there's pain behind the smile. Yeah. That yeah. I try not to be a burden to others. You know what I mean? Right. So, so, I mean, you don't see a lot of men sharing anything no. really, but alone adoption yeah. stories um, publicly anyway. So my question for you is why do you think that is? And what would you like to say to the men adoptees out there about why you share your story? Well, for me, the reason I share it is, is like I said, um, people who say, um, don't you bring back the past and the hurt every time you tell your story, Jim? And because that's in the, how do you feel after you tell your story? And I tell everyone else, it feels like I went 20 rounds in a ring. So when I get off this podcast with you, I'm, I'm going to be beat. Yeah. I'm going to be beat because of what I went through and what I'm telling you. Mm-hmm. And emotionally, yeah, it gets to me, but men have come to me to tell me about their experiences and other adoptees. I didn't know one adoptee, say five years ago, I think maybe I knew one or two. I know thousands of them now from all over the world, you know, and it, it's for a reason. I went through all this stuff for a reason. And the good thing about it is, I'm I'm able to um, talk to others and they're not scared to, to tell me what they went through. Yeah. See, if they don't see me being transparent and goes, how are they going to say, okay, Jim is honest. I, I could talk to Jim about everything that happened to him or happened to them themselves as a child or what they're going through now. You never know. I don't know. Yeah. You know? So this is the reason why I tell it. And people always say, Oh, you're, you're a strong guy. It goes, I'm not strong. I goes, I feel like a, like a train ran me over after I finished telling my story. That's not strong. I'm just, I just do it because it needs to be said, needs to be told. Yeah. You know, so that's why I do it. Well, you're giving permission for others to do the same, Mm -hmm. you know? Exactly. And the other thing that adoptees have trouble with is trusting people. I know I did. And it Mm -hmm. seems like your wife, Tina, Mm-hmm. seems to be not only your rock, but also your soft place to land when things get yeah. hard. Yeah. So what qualities did you see in her that made you feel safe enough to be vulnerable with her in your relationship? And like, did that happen right away? Or was that a process for you to trust her? Well, I probably, because she was my first girlfriend. She was my first girlfriend because I was always afraid to have girlfriends because of the abandonment issue and stuff like that. I was afraid of, of, all of a sudden liking somebody and then they're going to just get rid of me. Yeah. That's why I didn't really like to get close to anybody mm-hmm. till I fell in love. I'm going to tell you the truth. I fell in love with her when I was 20 years old. We went to the same high school, graduated in the same class. And we didn't meet each other till two years after on a blind date. Uh, wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we're we're celebrating our fortieth anniversary next next year. So, what was it about her that you well, were able to feel like <laughs> 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 her looks? <laughs> um, but eventually, trusting yeah. her. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, probably because she didn't leave me when I told her I was adopted. That's the number one. That's when I really, really fell in love with her. Of course, she always says, well, you know, she didn't say I love you back till maybe a year and a half after. And that's when we decided to get married. Mm-hmm. And it's just like. So you said it first. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> she, she, she always tell me that too. <laughs> she reminds you. Yeah. She always says, I'm sorry. I never said it back to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Yeah. At least he didn't leave me at the Chinese restaurant that time. (laughs) Like you thought was going to happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But let's go back to your positive outlook and attitude. Sure. Um, It seems like, you know, obviously about everything that's happened to you, um, you've kind of turned it around. And um, I always say everyone has kind of their own uh, combination to their healing journey. And um, if there was one combination that worked for everyone, we'd all be doing it, right? (laughs) If we all knew what mm-hmm. to do, we just do it. Yeah. Um, how did you get to the point of not being a victim in your circumstances? And and what were some of the things that you personally discovered that worked for you? Not being a victim? Um, probably talking about it. Because, like I said, I, I held it in for 40 years, 40, 42 years. I held it. I held that secret of yeah. being molested. I held that secret till I started getting answers. You know, just by me tell, really telling, start telling my story on all these podcasts. And then I'm I'm going deeper and deeper into my story because it seems like every year uh, something would change. The loss of biological parents, the loss of adopted parents, um, uh, the loss of family members uh, telling me, you know, I wasn't, I'm just a big baby. I'm not a man like they thought I was because I tell my story. But did any, but did any of them call me since I've been telling all my stories the last three, four years? Not one person has called me wow. to say, we're sorry that happened to you, Jim. Yeah. Who was it? Nothing. Mm. So how, how do you think that makes me feel? Yeah. You know, there's a, there's that line in the movie in Antoine Fisher. I'm still standing. I'm still strong. That's when he goes back to his foster mom and the person that abused him, mm. which is no matter this, is my time. Yeah. And he said that I'm still standing. I'm still strong. I got that tattooed on my legs. Mm. I got that tattooed on my legs. I don't know, five years ago. And then another one, let your mess be your message. I got that tattooed oh, on my other leg. That's a good one. Because yeah. they're, conver- they're conversation starters. So when yeah. people always ask me, what does that mean, Jim? Mm. Let me tell you my story. Yeah. See? Was there something that triggered you turning your mess into your message and getting you to start talking about it? Was there something that happened or just something clicked? Because I didn't want to be um, defeated by the trauma. I, I, I've always been a someone that was always fighting, always fighting for uh, not being a mistake. You know, we we went and watched that movie Creed 3 this past Saturday. Oh, yeah. But, but Creed 2... There's a scene in that movie that that always got to me. It's when he was in the corner and he was about to, Rocky was about to tell him to to throw in the towel because he was getting beat up. And he goes, don't, don't stop the fight. And he goes, why? I want to prove it. He goes, prove what? 
prove that I'm, I'm not a mistake. Mm. So I've been proving that all. I've been trying to prove that all my life. Yeah. Jim Strong was not a mistake. Yeah. Even though I, I've been felt like I've been treated like that all my life. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. So, yeah. So I've heard you say something to the effect that you're always oh, that smiley, happy guy. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the guy that you show to the world. So what happens when you log off Facebook and Instagram and the microphone's turned off and you're not on a podcast? And mm-hmm. is that joyful and optimistic guy really who you are? Or are you still in the process of finding your authentic self? Well, you'll see me. You'll see me a lot uh, on my Facebook posts and Instagrams. You'll see me at the beach a lot, out in the nature a lot. That brings me a lot of peace. Um, me just being quiet, and sometimes I don't remember that program. This is us. Remember that program? Yeah. Remember that one scene when he goes into the lake, and he walks into the lake, and in his he's dreaming. Mm-hmm. His biological mother is in the lake with him. And his biological mother tells him, give it up. Just scream. Yeah. And he goes in the lake and just screams. That's mm. sometimes what I, that's what I do sometimes. Yeah. Just, I have to be by myself. And I'll talk to, to God and I tell him, Lord, I, I know this is your plan. I don't understand it, but I'm starting to understand it. Yeah. The late, the older you get, you're understanding. I'm understanding in my life now. Yeah. And I'm not going to be defeated. Yeah. Once you start walking down the road of being mm-hmm. yourself, there's no turning back. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good thing and a bad yeah. thing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. A good thing, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Lastly, mm-hmm. what you, would mm-hmm. you tell adoptees? One piece of advice. If you could give them one piece of advice, what would that be? Um, search for the truth. Always tell the truth. And hopefully your loved ones beg them for the truth because I was lied at all my life. And even in those 20 years of knowing my biological mother, I was still fed some lies that I found out about. And you know what? Just, just get as much truth as you can. Yeah. Truth. Cause truth, if if lies kill a person, it killed me a lot of my life, a lot of my childhood. I was robbed from being happy. I was robbed from having, being alone, not having anybody. I never had nobody to go to. Yeah. You don't think I wanted to go to my parents and tell them I was being molested? Right. I couldn't. No. I was a little kid. Yeah. Being being tortured by a 20-year-old. Yeah. So... Well, again, thank you for being so vulnerable with me today. I I know that you're really passionate about telling your story and how important it is to you. And everyone's story is important. And I hear adoptees say all the time that there's, you know, my story is not that great. You know, I don't need, I don't have anything to say. Um, And I heard this saying um, one time that just stuck with me and it said, why to tell your story and it said, because your words are in the shape of somebody else's wound and they need to hear them. And exactly. <laughs> everybody that I talk to on this podcast mm-hmm. has something different to say mm-hmm. that someone is going to relate to. And exactly. um, so that's why I, I'm doing this. Um, yeah. But, you know, we're educating the world one story at yes. a time. So thank you for doing yours today on the show. 
Well, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you. Man, don't you want to just reach through your listening device right now and give Jim the hugest hug ever? He's been through so much and is still so brave and courageous to come forward and tell his story and be vulnerable. It's so hard as a male to do that. And here's Jim, this big tough guy who is showing the male adoptee community that it's okay to share your story, no matter what it is. And as Jim said, there's so many men coming forward and coming to him and saying, me too. That happened to me too. And they may have never told another soul that that had happened to them. But because Jim was able to tell his story, they felt safe telling their story to Jim. Thanks again, Jim, for being on the show. And thanks for being an example to the male adoptee community that it's time to tell your story. And if it is time to tell your story, you can email me at mindyourownkarma at gmail.com. Let's get you on the podcast. If you know of anyone that needs to hear this podcast, please feel free to share. That is it for today. As always, take what you need and leave what you don't. And always remember to mind your own karma. I'll see you next time.